Hello, hello. I'm Dr. Felicia Mebbin, Executive Director of the Center for Public Health Initiatives at Norfolk State University, and this is Health Healing in Hampton Roads. And I'm really excited to have as my guest, Ms. Courtney Pierce. Hi, Courtney. Hi, how are you doing, doctor? So good to see you again. Awesome. And it's okay if I call you Courtney, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, fabulous. So for our listeners out there, I met Courtney um, when both of us participated on a panel that the YWCA organized over the summer that was on the Norfolk State University campus. And we had some really great discussions about health equity and things that are happening in the community. And when I met Courtney and heard the wonderful things she had to say, I thought to myself, she must be a guest on the show. So here we are. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're quite welcome. We like to start with what's your connection to Hampton Roads? Like what brought you to this area? Sure. So my connection is deep running. Um, And so we are five generations from the same community in Portsmouth, Cavalier Manor. Um, My great grandparents moved there. It was a low to middle income neighborhood, you know, for working class black folks. And then across the street um, was uh, Crystal Lake where you had, you know, your black doctors and your black lawyers. And so um, my great grandparents grew up there. My grandmother, um, my mother, my father met there and fell in love at Charlestown. And I um, was born there as well and spent all of my youth and early adulthood there as well. And so deep roots to civic connections, deep roots to faith and family, um, and just a real community. And so really enjoy my uh, my childhood years there. And so my connection, is it runs so deep. Um, and this is the only home I've ever known. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And the history that, I just as a curiosity, mm-hmm. the history that your family has, was that passed down? So I asked that because in my family, um, I have a wonderful family, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a lot of discussion all the time about the history, especially as folks were getting closer to being enslaved. And so the, I'm always curious about black families and, you know, the information that they, that they know about their histories. Yeah, not again, that that disconnection from the transatlantic slave um trade and what that looked like for our community. So I probably have maybe five or six generations, but we did, um, for my father's birthday, I did um, some research. And what I found was the majority of, you know, his side and a little bit of my mom's side, um, Portsmouth area, Hampton Roads, uh, North Carolina. So it really does follow a lot of, you know, folks that are coming from the West Coast of Africa and, you know, being um, dropped here in America. And so our family's history is is connected to um, those that are enslaved. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's both, you know, both, you know, beauty and a burden um, as a black person here in America. Um, But it's something to be extremely proud of that we're here. We're we're still in existence. um, And just being here is a um, is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. I mean, I remember I think some families, black and brown communities are hesitant to talk about Mm -hmm. that history. And I say it because it is it Mm -hmm. is the history yes Mm -hmm. but as you said I'm also very proud of where I am now what we're doing Mm -hmm. now and all of these you know wonderful resources and who we are as a people so I think we can do both we can acknowledge that that happened but also celebrate who we are yeah I think it's Sonia Sanchez that says uh, to tell the truth is a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. so let's fast forward a little bit where did you go to school like what's your academic training or education. Sure. And so the way that I ended up here, I think is most certainly a God thing. And I sort of always laugh because I 
sort of always should have been here, but would have never thought I was here. And so um, went to Christian schools uh, throughout elementary and middle school and high school and graduated and went to Tidewater Community College, which I just want to put a plug in for community college. It's a great option for students and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, most certainly something in business. Both of my parents are entrepreneurs, um, hardworking folks. Um, both of them did not have the opportunity to go to college. My father didn't even graduate from high school, mm -hmm. um, but a wealth of wisdom and wanted me to have every opportunity that they didn't have and supported me in you know different endeavors so super grateful to them incredible incredible folks and so I went to Tidewater Community College and I got an associate's degree in business administration okay and I was on my way to ODU I was on my way to Old Dominion with I was going to major in a double major with business administration and political science and my dad had come to me one day and said hey like I heard about this program at Regent I thought it might be a good fit for you and so I was like oh, okay seemed like a good fit and so I graduated from Regent in 2010 with a bachelor's degree in organizational and leadership and management okay and that is where sort of a lot of the I call it like the young adult, you know, turmoil began. I couldn't find a job for two and a half years. I remember I was supposed to graduate in 2009, and I remember seeing the the paper in 2009 on the day that I was supposed to graduate. It said like the worst year to graduate college, and I was like, okay, oh I'm, I'm still in university for one more year. So, you know, I thought it would uh, be better, but it wasn't. It was incredibly difficult. Wow. So, so remind me what was happening in the larger environment at that time. I can't even remember. Sure. That so, purpose. you know, 2008 housing crisis hit, right. which also okay. hit my family really hard. My mom is a real estate agent and my dad is a mason by trade, a skilled okay. tradesman. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I remember growing up, we would go around the neighborhoods and my dad would say, I break to this house and I break this mailbox. And then, you know, all of that sort of really dried up. And I'll be very, my parents have always been hustlers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if one job won't do, then two will. And if two won't do, then three will. We, we found a way, held firm to our faith, um, came together as a family, but it was most certainly a difficult time. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of that sort of um, was going on during that time. And I think for me, it was just a journey that I needed to go on. I remember calling my great grandmother. It was Christmas Eve and I was about a year into my journey of trying to find a job. And so I worked at a florist. I worked as a tutor. So I found, you know, part time positions to sort of, you know, bring in some income. Um, but it just wasn't, you know, what you thought it would be right, when you graduate right. from we college. That shiny new degree. It, it, <laughs> yes. Yes. I have this piece of paper. You're supposed to hire me. And um, my great grandmother has since passed. But I called and I, you know, was just wanted to wish her um uh, you know, happy new year or Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And I said, Hey grandma. And she said, Hey baby. And I just broke down crying in tears. And she said, Oh baby, it's going to be okay. I said, I can't find a job. What am I going to do? I feel like I don't have, you know, that I'm not useful. I don't have skills that are translating to the job market. Um, and it also, you know, lingered on for another year. But I think that pep talk from her was like, OK, this is just a journey. It's going to be OK. Um, find skills that you can use. And so um, it's funny that I worked at a florist. I've always loved flowers. And then um, probably maybe about four or five years later, I opened up a small floral design business that I ran for about three years where I did weddings. Um, and recently I just did um, a friend's wedding that was in Jordan. And mm -hmm. so, you know, those skills, they never go away. They're never lacking. It might not be what you want to be, but um, I think it's important to gather as many skills as possible because you never know when you're going to need oh, them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've said so many wonderful things. First of all, I shout out TCC as well yes. because everybody <laughs> has their own path. Absolutely. And you have to take advantage of the mm -hmm. resources. Um, skills are so important. I mean, people should be graduating with skills from four-year colleges, mm -hmm. but whatever, however you get the skills, it's going to be important because communications, leadership, 
time management, project management. I mean, those are all skills that everybody can take advantage of. So that's really important too. And one thing I always emphasize, um, especially for students or people who are exploring, is that pathways are hardly ever straight. They you are. Know, sometimes yes, you have they to, are not. No, yes. Right? You have to figure it out, mm-hmm. and you have to give yourself grace. You mm-hmm. have to be able to say it's okay. Because um, one little tidbit I think I heard somewhere is it can take up to a year to find the next thing, mm-hmm. the next job. So you might have to be you, you know, be thinking about or be prepared for a gap or yes. it may not go exactly the way you mm-hmm. think. So even when, you, even when you're graduating, that can happen. Yes. So. And that's good to have that set expectation. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. So awesome. That sounds like really great experience. So part of the reason that I wanted to have you here for this podcast is because I know that you're working on areas now Mm -hmm. that relate to health and public health and really important community-based issues. So let's talk about your current position, um, how you got there, (laughs) how you pivoted from your floral business (laughs) to your current position. Um, And yeah, so tell us about what you're doing now. So about two and a half years after, um, you know, graduating, I found a part-time job. Um, One of the, actually one of the the young men at um, the church fellowship that I go to said, hey, here's an opportunity. And I was like, sure, I will, I will take it. And it was in um, the housing industry at Suffer Redevelopment Housing Authority. And it was working with folks to help them get uh, ready for first-time homebuyers programs um, where they would take um, historical homes and then they would redevelop them and then sort of m- match them with people in the first time home buyers program. And so I would meet with folks and a lot of things would start to come out like childhood trauma, uh, the wealth gap, the lack of knowledge, all those sorts of things that are sometimes really prevalent within black communities. And that's really how I got my start in service to our community and service to folks. I moved to working at the YWCA for three years as a sexual assault advocate, moved to working at Samaritan house as a victim advocate. So going to court with folks, um, And then I moved into the position that I'm currently in now, which is the Anti-Trafficking Outreach and Direct Service Coordinator. So in 2017, we had a partnership with the Office of the Attorney General for the state of Virginia. Um, Homeland Security is a silent partner, and we started the Hampton Roads Human Trafficking Task Force. And I currently am in the position there, helping to make sure that our program is trauma-informed and survivor-informed, as well as grant-compliant, running um, and facilitating some of our groups, our trauma-informed yoga group, our art enrichment, our art therapy, and our equine therapy, and just being a part of an incredible team of five folks, but as Samaritan House, an incredible team of about 35 folks that are doing really, really great work um, in a time that is very difficult to do it. So I just want to shout out Samaritan House, shout out all my coworkers, shout out the leadership there. I have an incredible supervisor. Her name is LaShonda Carson. I'm a better woman because she actually exists. She is the quintessential idea of what it means to be a leader. She is absolutely uh, stunning in every way. And she really has the opportunity to create leaders under her and our executive director, Robin, who's been there since the beginning. So she has been there for the long haul and long haul and has seen things through so mm-hmm. really grateful for the position that I have there amazing but tell us more about what is Samaritan House sure so Samaritan House we started out as a parachurch ministry we're now a non-faith-based organization we are a large anti-violence organization uh, we are in the city of Virginia Beach and our trafficking department are serving Southampton Roads and then our domestic violence and sexual assault and um, homeless departments are serving the city of Virginia Beach and so we have 14 undisclosed shelters in the city of Virginia Beach we have three that are just parsed out for trafficking. We have underserved committees that are focused on creating um, and and closing that gap around those disparities. And so I chair our Black and African American Advisory Committee, which is twofold. It's first to create a safe space for Black, African 
African-American and diaspora identified folks at Samaritan House. And then it's to do community work around intimate partner violence within our community from a strength space perspective. And I always like to note that because so much of the work that is, I think, done for black communities and not with black communities. Mm-hmm. And I want to make mm-hmm. that distinction because yes. the work that we're doing is with black communities as a black person, mm-hmm. not for black communities. So not from outside of our community, but from inside of our community is really to let folks know that black men in particular are not more inherently evil or violent than anyone else. And our people are not violent or right. evil, um, mm-hmm. that our people have incredible strengths and that black love is a foundation. And those foundations are, are dignity, respect, equity and equality that we see on a consistent basis in our in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Absolutely. Let's say that again. So we're not any more inherently violent. No. We're not any more inherently problematic at all. I mean, and in fact, from a public health perspective, it's the stressors of racism and systematic oppression and lack of resources that's not necessarily the individual's fault that puts pressure on people, right? So if we all had the same resources, we would all behave the same way pretty much, right? I mean, we have different personalities. Absolutely. But there's there's an angle to this Mm -hmm. from a public health perspective that's also about thinking about, well, if, if somebody has a perception that a certain group of people behave a certain way, let's really disentangle that. Mm-hmm. And so if it's not the individual's fault, which is what we're saying, mm-hmm. right, then what is leading to that? So there are yes. lots of reasons you may see some patterns of behavior, and it may not be the individuals primarily driven by the individual. Absolutely. And, you know, sociologists and social workers and psychologists know these aspects of that and you know, white supremacy continues to, you know, be a hardship and a burden. And it's something that's continued to wreak havoc, you know, within and on our communities. And so that's something to be noted as well, that there's a great book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, written by Joy DeGray. And I think it's a, a book that everyone should read. Um, it's a very difficult read, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's worth it and necessary. And she goes through sort of each disparity within black communities. And she really does give a history behind that. So I'm a firm believer, if you don't know your history, then you're not going to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And so looking back in the past sometimes can be really, really Really difficult. You know, someone in the mental health space, as we talk about therapy, you're looking back on your past and tra- sort of looking and detangling what that looks like and giving you reasons for why you've gotten here, not excuses, but reasons. Right. And then it gives you your launching pad to move forward, which I think is what we're doing as a black community as a whole. Right, right. And it's not to say that ind- individuals aren't responsible. No, absolutely. Please, you know, everybody yeah. don't come in. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. just saying, though, in order to help communities mm-hmm. and to help groups of people, sometimes you, you have to look beyond the individual situation mm-hmm. to prevent, absolutely. for example, yes. um, people feeling that pressure, being in a circumstance where, again, there are no job opportunities, you're very frustrated, or you start drinking or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the, you know, however it manifests itself. So there's individual responsibility for sure but Mm -hmm. there's also some systematic you know um, two things can be true at at once exactly Mm -hmm. exactly so to back up a little bit so a scenario for someone who would take advantage of the Samaritan house Mm -hmm. right would you give us a scenario sure that Uh, I I worked a hotline shift, you know, supporting our intake department and we had someone call in and it was her and her husband and they had um, had a verbal altercation that turned physical. Her husband threw something at her. Um, She did reach out to law enforcement. Law enforcement called us with her permission 
and we discussed um, what would be next steps. And so could that possibly be shelter? Could that be counseling? Could that be a protective order? Could that be one of our groups that she takes a part of? Or it could just be that phone call for that one night, and that's okay as well. And so really our job at Samaritan House as advocates is to educate on all of the opportunities and possibilities that you can take as a community member and then allow you to decide because we're firm believers in the empowerment model and you've been living you know with this person in this marriage or in this relationship um, for much longer than I have and so you're the expert in your story when it comes to that and my expertise um, is within the education part within the advocacy part and so again that coming alongside and working with program participants we don't work for them and we don't work um, you know under them either so we're working with them and I think that that concept is something that is very helpful and the empowerment model is very helpful in the sense that okay this person is choosing whether or not they want support and that's okay Um, and also we know that a lot of domestic violence survivors it can take up to seven times for someone to leave that situation and so our organization prides itself on being non-judgmental and also creating a space for someone to circumvent or come back around. And we see that a lot. And that happens, especially when these patterns have been instilled um, in folks since childhood. Right. And that's yes, there are patterns is something that exactly the research shows mm-hmm. about some of this. And and to the extent that, you know, violence is framed as a public health issue precisely because it is. In, public health fields, we're really trying to get a handle on how do we prevent it and then how do we look at the systematic uh, context, as we mentioned before. So Samaritan House, so the way you describe Mm -hmm. Samaritan House is based in Virginia Beach. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who aren't in Virginia Beach, what would be a similar resource? Sure. So we have sister agencies throughout the Hampton Roads area, and I want to say that we are really blessed as a community to have so many. So in the city of Norfolk, it's going to be the YWCA. In the city of Portsmouth and Chesapeake, it's going to be the HER Shelter. In the city of Suffolk and uh, the county of Alawite, it will be the Geneve Shelter. And then for our folks on the peninsula, it's going to be Transitions Family Violence. And then those that are on the Eastern Shore, it will be Eastern Shore um domestic violence organization and in Williamsburg it's going to be Avalon amazing thank you so much what a great resource that is really awesome so there you go so and I think the main point if you didn't catch all of that we will have this as a podcast at some point so that people can follow up but I think the main um, idea is that the resources are there yes the resources are there um and have the resources sometimes feel you know a little bit pinched because I, I really am a big proponent of being transparent and very open. Mm -hmm. The last three years have been very, very hard for many um, domestic violence and sexual assault agencies. You know, um, rates of turnover within employees just because the nature of the work. And then that was compounded by, you know, 2020, where we saw so many black and brown folks, um, you know, murdered before our eyes. So the compounded violence and then in COVID as well. And so we were just hit with so many things. Um, So, you know, we are we we never shut down during the pandemic. We kept staying steady. Um, and I think some of us that are working in the field are, you know, you know, now recovering a little bit more and coming out of that and what that looks like. But the resources never stopped. The resources were fully there. Um, some of them might have shifted a little bit. So I want to be honest with our program participants or excuse me, our community members. Um, but we are still rocking and rolling as well as every single agency that I listed. Yeah, that's amazing. Because, again, one of the um concepts that was elevated out of the pandemic is looking at the impact of trauma community-wide worldwide trauma as in the pandemic on our providers on our healthcare yes. workers our community members who are engaged in supporting other community mm-hmm. members i mean all of that takes a toll so 
thank you for mentioning that as well. But again, the resources are there because people are committed. So I do want to follow up a little bit too on you said the police officer called mm-hmm. you. That sounds ideal. Like how is that relationship built, sure. right? Isn't that mm-hmm. what we want to have happen? So at Samaritan House, um, we again are a victim services agency. We interact with law enforcement, and that interaction is usually based on how a program participant would want that interaction to look like. So what happened was on the hotline, that was called a LAP call, which is a lethality assessment protocol. So the the person that called on the phone felt safe enough to call law enforcement. Law enforcement responded, and they responded within the protocol that we have in the city of Virginia Beach, is that when they go out to a intimate partner violence or a domestic violence situation, that they um, administer a LAP, a lethality assessment protocol, and they will call the local agency, whether or not that person, you know, wants to, to speak to them so that we are just aware that there's a community member that is that has been harmed. And if that person does decide to call back, then that person is on our radar. And so I want to make it abundantly clear um, that Samaritan House is not law enforcement. Samaritan House is a victim services agency. And our relationship with law enforcement is really driven by those that we're serving in the community. Um, part of what I was honing in on is you know, that type of situation is not all about the crime. It's about supporting Mm -hmm. the victim. And so it's really great that the law enforcement in Virginia Beach are implementing that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they get to decide whether they're going to make the call, right? Outside of the criminal Mm -hmm. aspect of it. So the protocol is that they call, and that happens within other cities. I just want to note that Virginia Beach is a city that Samaritan House is in. And so, yes, so that relationship is um, something, and I hope that it does help law enforcement feel eased that there is a victim services agency that even if this person isn't um, wanting to speak with us at that point in time, that they are aware of Mm -hmm. the services provided at Samaritan House. And I think resourcing is such a huge um, aspect to advocacy work, right. just letting folks know that you exist. Right, right. And and again, that the police, the people who are supposed to enforce the laws are not necessarily the best place to provide support. So mm-hmm. to have the connection between the two, to me, seems like a great thing. Yes, we've been connected for a very, very long time, you know, since really the startup of our agency. That's, that is really great to hear. So I want to shift gears. Um, we've talked about domestic violence, mm-hmm. but... On the panel, you also talked about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that issue in this area. Sure. So um, if you look at uh, a heat map of the United States, a lot of the trafficking is going to be on your coastlines. And we sit smack dab in the middle of a coastline. And so in Virginia, we do have an issue with trafficking and particularly within the area of Hampton Roads. We see a lot of trafficking in the cities of Virginia Beach and Newport News, but it is spread throughout Hampton Roads. And that's why um, we are a two-time grant recipient of a federal grant from OVC coming down from the Department of Justice, um, the Office of Victims of Crime, to serve victims of trafficking. Um, So we have three undisclosed shelters that are just for trafficking survivors um, where we're able to provide one of the main resources which is housing, and then um, wrap around all of those services around them as they uh, want and as they need. And so I do want to make people aware that trafficking is not just an international issue. It's an issue here right um, in our backyard and in our homes. Um, A lot of the trafficking happens at hotels and motels. Um, So again, that's not every hotel motel, but that's where we see the majority of our program participants um, uh, being harmed at, as well as houses. Um, So some people would call them um, like an independent brothel or something like that. So we see uh, that happening a lot. 
And I will note also for us as black folks, we make up about 12 or 13 percent of the population in the United States. We make up about 40 percent of the trafficking population for wow. the United States. So, again, there's an overrepresentation of black folks within uh, the victimization and oppression of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that's the case? I think it's the case very similar to why we see black women's lethality is 2.5 times higher than any other racial group. And lethality is not just harm. It's death when we're talking about intimate partner violence. And so the lack of resourcing within communities, uh, systemic oppression within communities, we see that a lot. We see that a lot also with um, missing children. We Mm -hmm. see a lot Mm -hmm. of black and brown missing children in our area as well. And so, you know, I'll say, you know, when America gets a cold, black folks get a flu. So Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. exacerbated in our communities. Mm -hmm. So in some respects, black women and black children are more vulnerable Mm -hmm. um, because its community doesn't have resources. Let's say there's not... Um, child care, people can't afford it, child wanders off, or, um, you know, again, like you said, mm-hmm. you're the victim of partner violence and you don't have someone who can take you in mm-hmm. or you run away, right, as a teenager for whatever reason. Um, and if communities don't have the safety nets to help folks in those situations, then they become more vulnerable. Yes, we see a lot of folks that are coming from foster care that end up within trafficking because, again, no systems of uh, social capital or social support. The majority of our trafficking survivors are trafficked by an intimate partner mm-hmm. or a family member. Mm-hmm. So we are not seeing people wow. snatch people in vans. Now, oh, again, okay. that's kidnapping right. and that's a whole nother, you know, right. conversation. And, yes, like, and yeah, something right, else. Right. But it's mm-hmm. mainly people that are in relationship with people. So if you look at it, you know, similar to sexual assault, it's mainly someone that someone knew. So it's very important to make that distinction. And that's why I think it's so important to teach our youth about healthy and whole dating relationships and healthy and whole relationships in general, um, because oftentimes that's how people are lured in. Right. Thank you so much for saying that, because I had a picture in my mind because I was thinking, you know, this area has ports and Mm -hmm. it's on what, I-95, I-85, and I'd kind of heard for example, some of the drug trade comes mm-hmm. down the highway up and down the East Coast. And so it makes the communities along that trade a little more vulnerable to yeah. and that um, be overdose. A, yeah. But mm-hmm. so I was thinking it's people coming through or people. But that that's not what you yeah, said. It's a lot. It's eight. 85% of our population, 85 to 88% of the people that we serve at Samaritan House are U.S. citizens, um, many of them from this area mm-hmm. that had gotten into relationships and then were trafficked by either, again, a family member, or intimate partner, or a business owner. I think a lot of times we think about trafficking and we only think about sex trafficking. We don't think about labor trafficking and domestic servitude. Right, right. Okay, so... I'm saying right now we're going to have to have you come back because we just introduced some major serious issues here. And so, folks, what I want to end on, Mm because we're coming to the end of the segment, is, you know, just think about what we've said. Because if you care about our communities, then then think about it. (laughs) Because there there are a lot of things that we can do to help build belonging to communities Mm -hmm. so that people know where the resources are so that they feel – they feel safe enough to, to reach out and connect with people to get help and to get support. Um, that's going to help. But also um, maybe think about being an advocate. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should be leaning on our policymakers. Maybe we should be leaning on our businesses yes. and other folks to take mm-hmm. some responsibility as they are in our communities <laughs> and they rely on our communities um, for, for you know, everything, right? So. So we should also be looking at the systems and, and thinking about where decisions are made, where resources are being allocated, and putting pressure on that to have a better environment for everybody. Yes, very important. Focus on that macro work, um, policy and advocacy work. Um, as someone who's finishing up a master's in social work, that's very, very important. 
Would that be you? Yes. Amazing. <laughs> We're going to end on that note. So that sounds amazing, actually, for you to go ahead and get to get that formal training, even yes. though you've been doing the amazing work. No, yeah, it's been a very, um, very formative in the work that I think I'm going to uh, sort of a launching pad to the next steps. And can you say where you're getting the degree? Sure. I am on it in an online program at Western New Mexico University. And so I've had a, a really good time there. Um, and it's been something that's been really flexible for my schedule. So shout out to online learning. Nice. <laughs> exactly. So again, Courtney, you've been an amazing guest. And I think you're amazing. So I know you said you, your boss is amazing. You're amazing as well. And we look forward to having you on the show again. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to folks who are listening out there. Again, I am Dr. Felicia Mebbin, Executive Director of the Center for Public Health Initiatives at Norfolk State University. And this is Health, Healing, and Hampton Roads. 